Section three of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. For a man with a natural tendency to meddle with other people's business, there could not possibly be a more congenial sphere than the Liverpool consulate. For myself, I had never been in the habit of feeling that I could sufficiently comprehend any particular conjunction of circumstances with human character to justify me in thrusting in my awkward agency among the intricate and unintelligible machinery of providence. I have always hated to give advice, especially when there is a prospect of its being taken. It is only one-eyed people who love to advise, or have any spontaneous promptitude of action. When a man opens both his eyes, he generally sees about as many reasons for acting in any one way as in any other, and quite as many for acting in neither, and is therefore likely to leave his friends to regulate their own conduct, and also to remain quiet as regards his especial affairs till necessity shall prick him onward. Nevertheless, the world and individuals flourish upon a constant succession of blunders. The secret of English practical success lies in their characteristic faculty of shutting one eye, whereby they get so distinct and decided a view of what immediately concerns them, that they go stumbling towards it over a hundred insurmountable obstacles, and achieve a magnificent triumph without ever being aware of half its difficulties. If General McClellan could but have shut his left eye, the right one would long ago have guided us into Richmond. Meanwhile, I have strayed far away from the consulate, where, as I was about to say, I was compelled, in spite of my disinclination, to impart both advice and assistance in multifarious affairs that did not personally concern me, and presume that I affected about as little mischief as other men in similar contingencies. The duties of the office carried me to prisons, police courts, hospitals, lunatic asylums, coroner's inquests, deathbeds, funerals, and brought me in contact with insane people, criminals, ruined speculators, wild adventurers, diplomatists, brother consuls, and all manner of simpletons and unfortunates in greater number and variety than I had ever dreamed of as pertaining to America in addition to whom there was an equivalent multitude of English rogues, dexterously counterfeiting the genuine Yankee article. It required great discrimination not to be taken in by these last-mentioned scoundrels, for they knew how to imitate our national traits, had been at great pains to instruct themselves as regarded American localities, and were not readily to be caught by a cross-examination as to the topographical features public institutions or prominent inhabitants of the places where they pretended to belong. The best shibboleth I ever hit upon lay in the pronunciation of the word bin, which the English invariably make to rhyme with green, and we northerners at least, in accordance, I think, with the custom of Shakespeare's time, universally pronounce bin. All the matters that I have been treating of, however, were merely incidental, and quite distinct from the real business of the office. A great part of the wear and tear of mind and temper resulted from the bad relations between the seamen and officers of American ships. Scarcely a morning passed 
but that some sailor came to show the marks of his ill-usage on shipboard. Often it was a whole crew of them, each with his broken head or livid bruise, and all testifying with one voice to a constant series of savage outrages during the voyage, or it might be they laid an accusation of actual murder perpetrated by the first or second officers, with many blows of steel knuckles, a rope's end or a marlin spike, or by the captain in the twinkling of an eye with a shot of his pistol. Taking the seaman's view of the case, you would suppose that the gibbet was hungry for the murderers. Listening to the captain's defense, you would seem to discover that he and his officers were the humanest of mortals, but were driven to a wholesome severity by the mutinous conduct of the crew, who, moreover, had themselves slain their comrade in the drunken riot and confusion of the first day or two after they were shipped. Looked at judicially, there appeared to be no right side to the matter, nor any right side possible in so thoroughly vicious a system as that of the American mercantile marine. The consul could do little except to take depositions, hold forth the greasy testament to be profaned anew with perjured kisses, and, in a few instances of murder or manslaughter, carry the case before an English magistrate, who generally decided that the evidence was too contradictory to authorize the transmission of the accused for trial in America. The newspapers all over England contained paragraphs in vain against the cruelties of American shipmasters. The British Parliament took up the matter, for nobody is so humane as John Bull, when his benevolent propensities are to be gratified by finding fault with his neighbor, and caused Lord John Russell to remonstrate with our government on the outrages for which it was responsible before the world, and which it failed to prevent or punish. The American Secretary of State, old General Cass, responded, with perfectly astounding ignorance of the subject, to the effect that the statements of outrages had probably been exaggerated, that the present laws of the United States were quite adequate to deal with them, and that the interference of the British minister was uncalled for. The truth is that the state of affairs was really very horrible, and could be met by no laws at that time, or, I presume now, in existence. I once thought of writing a pamphlet on the subject, but quitted the consulate before finding time to effect my purpose, and all that phase of my life immediately assumed so dreamlike a consistency that I despaired of making it seem solid or tangible to the public. And now it looks distant and dim, like troubles of a century ago. The origin of the evil lay in the character of the seamen, scarcely any of who were American, but the off-scourings and refuse of all the seaports of the world, such stuff as piracy is made of, together with a considerable intermixture of returning emigrants and a sprinkling of absolutely kidnapped American citizens. Even with such material the ships were very inadequately manned. The shipmaster found himself upon the deep, with a vast responsibility of property and human life upon his hands, and no means of salvation except by compelling his inefficient and demoralized crew to heavier exertions than could reasonably be required of the same number of able seamen. By law he had been entrusted with no discretion of judicious punishment. He therefore habitually left the whole matter of discipline to his irresponsible mates, 
men often of scarcely a superior quality to the crew. Hence ensued a great mass of petty outrages, unjustifiable assaults, shameful indignities, and nameless cruelty, demoralizing alike to the perpetrators and the sufferers. These enormities fell into the ocean between the two countries, and could be punished in neither. Many miserable stories come back upon my memory as I write, wrongs that were immense, but for which nobody could be held responsible, and which, indeed, the closer you looked into them, the more they lost the aspect of willful misdoing, and assumed that of an inevitable calamity. It was the fault of a system, the misfortune of an individual. Be that as it may, however, there will be no possibility of dealing effectually with these troubles, as long as we deem it inconsistent with our national dignity or interests to allow the English courts, under such restrictions as may seem fit, a jurisdiction over offences perpetrated on board our vessels in mid-ocean. In such a life as this, the American shipmaster develops himself into a man of iron energies, dauntless courage, and inexhaustible resource, at the expense, it must be acknowledged, of some of the higher and gentler traits which might do him excellent service in maintaining his authority. The class has deteriorated of late years, on account of the narrower field of selection, owing chiefly to the diminution of that excellent body of respectably educated New England seamen, from the flower of whom the officers used to be recruited. Yet I found them, in many cases, very agreeable and intelligent companions, with less nonsense about them than landsmen usually have, eschewers of fine-spun theories, delighting in square and tangible ideas, but occasionally infested with prejudices that stuck to their brains like barnacles to a ship's bottom. I never could flatter myself that I was a general favorite with them. One or two, perhaps even now, would scarcely meet me on amicable terms. Endowed universally with a great pertinacity of will, they especially disliked the interference of a consul with their management on shipboard notwithstanding which I thrust in my very limited authority at every available opening, and did the utmost that lay in my power, though with lamentably small effect, towards enforcing a better kind of discipline. They thought, no doubt, and on plausible grounds enough, but scarcely appreciating just that one little grain of hard New England sense oddly thrown in among the flimsier composition of the consul's character, that he, a landsman, a bookman, and, as people said of him, a fanciful recluse, could not possibly understand anything of the difficulties or the necessities of a shipmaster's position. But their cold regards were rather acceptable than otherwise, for it is exceedingly awkward to assume a judicial austerity in the morning towards a man with whom you have been hobnobbing overnight. With the technical details of the business of that great consulate, for great it then was, though now I fear woefully fallen off, and perhaps never to be revived in anything like its former extent, I did not much interfere. They could safely be left to the treatment of two as faithful, upright, and competent subordinates, both Englishmen, as ever a man was fortunate enough to meet with, in a line of life altogether new and strange to him. I had come over with instructions to supply both their places with Americans, 
but possessing a happy faculty of knowing my own interest and the public's, I quietly kept hold of them, being a little inclined to open the consular doors to a spy of the State Department or an intriguer for my own office. The venerable vice-consul, Mr. Pierce, had witnessed the successive arrivals of a score of newly appointed consuls, shadowy and short-lived dignitaries, and carried his reminiscences back to the epoch of Consul Maury, who was appointed by Washington, and has acquired almost the grandeur of a mythical personage in the annals of the consulate. The principal clerk, Mr. Wilding, who has since succeeded to the vice-consulship, was a man of English integrity, not that the English are more honest than ourselves, but only there is a certain sturdy reliableness common among them, which we do not quite so invariably manifest in just these subordinate positions. Of English integrity, combined with American acuteness of intellect, quick-wittedness, and diversity of talent, it seemed an immense pity that he should wear out his life at a desk without a step in advance from year's end to year's end, when, had it been his luck to be born on our side of the water, his bright faculties and clear probity would have ensured him eminent success in whatever path he might adopt. Meanwhile it would have been a sore mischance to me had any better fortune on his part deprived me of Mr. Wilding's services. A fair amount of common sense, some acquaintance with United States statutes, an insight into character, a tact of management, a general knowledge of the world, and a reasonable but not too inveterately decided preference for his own will and judgment over those of interested people. These natural attributes and moderate acquirements will enable a consul to perform many of his duties respectably, but not to dispense with a great variety of other qualifications only attainable by long experience. Yet, I think, few consuls are so well accomplished. An appointment of whatever grade in the diplomatic or consular service of America is too often what the English call a job. That is to say, it is made on private and personal grounds, without a paramount eye to the public good or the gentleman's especial fitness for the position. It is not too much to say, of course allowing for a brilliant exception here and there, that an American never is thoroughly qualified for a foreign post, nor has time to make himself so, before the revolution of the political wheel discards him from his office. Our country wrongs itself by permitting such a system of unsuitable appointments, and still more of removals for no cause, just when the incumbent might be beginning to ripen into usefulness. Mere ignorance of official detail is of comparatively small moment, though it is considered indispensable, I presume, that a man in any private capacity shall be thoroughly acquainted with the machinery and operation of his business, and shall not necessarily lose his position on having attained much knowledge. But there are so many more important things to be thought of in the qualifications of a foreign resident that his technical dexterity or clumsiness is hardly worth mentioning. One great part of a consul's duty, for example, should consist in building up for himself a recognized position in the society where he resides, so that his local influence might be felt in behalf of his own country, and so far as they are compatible, as they generally are to the utmost extent, for the interests of both nations. 
the foreign city should know that it has a permanent inhabitant and a hearty well-wisher in him. There are many conjunctures, and one of them is now upon us, where a long-established, honored, and trusted American citizen, holding a public position under our government in such a town as Liverpool, might go far towards swaying and directing the sympathies of the inhabitants. He might throw his own weight into the balance against mischief-makers. He might have set his foot on the first little spark of malignant purpose, which the next wind may blow into a national war. But we willfully give up all advantages of this kind. The position is totally beyond the attainment of an American. There to-day, bristling all over with the porcupine quills of our republic, and gone to-morrow, just as he is becoming sensible of the broader and more generous patriotism which might almost amalgamate with that of England, without losing an atom of its native force and flavor. In the changes that appear to await us, and some of which, at least, can hardly fail to be for good, let us hope for a reform in this matter." For myself, as the gentle reader would spare me the trouble of saying, I was not at all the kind of man to grow into such an ideal consul as I have here suggested. I never in my life desired to be burdened with public influence. I disliked my office from the first, and never came into any good accordance with it. Its dignity, so far as it had any, was an encumbrance. The attentions it drew upon me, such as invitations to mayor's banquets and public celebrations of all kinds, where, to my horror, I found myself expected to stand up and speak, were, as I may say without incivility or ingratitude, because there is nothing personal in that sort of hospitality, a bore. The official business was irksome and often painful. There was nothing pleasant about the whole affair except the emoluments, and even those, never too bountifully reaped, were diminished by more than half in the second or third year of my incumbency. All this being true, I was quite prepared in advance of the inauguration of Mr. Buchanan to send in my resignation. When my successor arrived, I drew the long, delightful breath which first made me thoroughly sensible what an unnatural life I had been leading, and compelled me to admire myself for having battled with it so sturdily. The newcomer proved to be a very genial and agreeable gentleman, an F.F.V., and, as he pleasantly acknowledged, a southern fire-eater, an announcement to which I responded, with similar good-humor and self-complacency, by parading my descent from an ancient line of Massachusetts Puritans. Since our brief acquaintanceship, my fire-eating friend has made ample opportunities to banquet on his favorite diet, hot and hot, in the Confederate service. For myself, as soon as I was out of office, the retrospect began to look unreal. I could scarcely believe that it was I, that figure whom they called a consul, but a sort of double-ganger, who had been permitted to assume my aspect, under which he went through his shadowy duties with a tolerable show of efficiency, while my real self had lain, as regarded my proper mode of being and acting, in a state of suspended animation. The same sense of illusion still pursues me. There is some mistake in this matter. I have been writing about another man's consular experiences, with which, 
through some mysterious medium of transmitted ideas, I find myself intimately acquainted, but in which I cannot possibly have had a personal interest. Is it not a dream altogether? The figure of that poor doctor of divinity looks wonderfully lifelike. So do those of the oriental adventurer with the visionary coronet above his brow, and the moonstruck visitor of the queen, and the poor old wanderer seeking his native country through English highways and byways for almost thirty years, and so would a hundred others that I might summon up with similar distinctness. But were they more than shadows? Surely I think not. Nor are these present pages a bit of intrusive autobiography. Let not the reader wrong me by supposing it. I never should have written with half such unreserve, had it been a portion of this life congenial with my nature, which I am now living, instead of a series of incidents and characters entirely apart from my own concerns, and on which the qualities personally proper to me could have had no bearing. Almost the only real incidents as I see them now were the visits of a young English friend, a scholar and a literary amateur, between whom and myself there sprung up an affectionate and, I trust, not transitory regard. He used to come and sit or stand by my fireside, talking vivaciously and eloquently with me about literature and life, his own national characteristics and mine, with such kindly endurance of the many rough republicanisms wherewith I assailed him, and such frank and amiable assertion of all sorts of English prejudices and mistakes, that I understood his countrymen infinitely the better for him, and was almost prepared to love the intensest Englishman of them all for his sake. It would gratify my cherished remembrance of this dear friend, if I could manage without offending him, or letting the public know it, to introduce his name upon my page. Bright was the illumination of my dusky little apartment as often as he made his appearance there. The English sketches which I have been offering to the public comprise a few of the more external and therefore more readily manageable things that I took note of in many escapes from the imprisonment of my consular servitude. Liverpool, though not very delightful as a place of residence, is a most convenient and admirable point to get away from. London is only five hours off by the fast train. Chester, the most curious town in England, with its encompassing wall, its ancient rose, and its venerable cathedral, is close at hand. North Wales, with all its hills and ponds, its noble sea scenery, its multitude of grey castles and strange old villages, may be glanced at in a summer day or two. The lakes and mountains of Cumberland and Westmoreland may be reached before dinner-time. The haunted and legendary Isle of Man, a little kingdom by itself, lies within the scope of an afternoon's voyage. Edinburgh or Glasgow are attainable overnight, and Loch Lomond betimes in the morning. Visiting these famous localities, and a great many others, I hope that I do not compromise my American patriotism by acknowledging that I was often conscious of a fervent hereditary attachment to the native soil of our forefathers, and felt it to be our own old home. End of section 3